Good morning, Georgetown. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Earlier this week, I was reading uh, some research in uh, Christianity Today. There was an article summarizing the research by the Pew Research Group. And uh, the bottom line is that people are giving up on Christianity. The title of the article, something like Decline of Christianity, shows no signs of stopping uh, anytime soon. Uh, so, the decline of Christianity is believed, according to this research, to be something that will not stop anytime soon, and if we're projecting it, it's going to get worse. So it's not a question of whether Christianity will decline, but how far and how fast will it decline? The study shows that our neighbors, they're all asking, uh, if I can get all the societal change that I think we need by just punching the right ticket politically when it's time to vote, then why do I need to commit myself to a church? Like, can I just hit snooze and go to the lake? It, it doesn't appear to be making any difference because our nation of educated, insured, affluent, automated, which is not inherently evil, uh, but this unbothered culture will not tolerate any biblically-based truth claims by and large. Our culture is rapidly losing faith in, in God. Instead, they're replacing it with like a, a political ideology or, or maybe a, a gender-sexual-based identity or... or and this seems less terrible, but it's still horrendous when you ask the big questions in life. Where do I come from? Where do I go? What is my purpose? A sports team? Like, imagine basing your identity on a sports team. Even if they're great, this is a terrible solution that ultimately ends up leaving us hopeless. The research indicates that our country could not quite care less about Jesus, let alone his church. So, so what, as Christians, we're given these, this mission by Jesus to love God and love our neighbor, to go forth into the world, teaching, baptizing, discipling. How do we get their attention? How, how, do, we, how do we express the hope that we live with every day? How, how is it that a, a Christian or a, a gathering of Christians, a church, how do we express that hope that they may not even know they need because they've got insurance and affluence and what else could they possibly need? The Colts are winning or whatever team you choose. How do we get through all of that haze? Peter believes, and we'll look at this in 1 Peter chapter 3 today, Peter believes our behavior is shaped by Scripture and the Spirit and thereby will show the hope that we have in Jesus. Jesus said it this way in John 13, 35, they will know you're my disciples by your what? By your love. They'll know that you're my disciples by your love. So maybe that's like a key here to the question, what do we do? The question that I, I think our culture has identified, I think Pew Research has, has kind of seen it. I think that first-year college students pick up on it, maybe even seniors and juniors in high school start to detect that somewhere along the way, these people who call themselves Christians, they stopped laying down their life, and they started, uh, they started living, 
or something else. They started living, in most cases, this has been true in my own life, they've actually started living for the American dream instead of a kingdom that will not be overcome. I think Jesus said it like this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I believe Satan plants this almost unnoticeable little bitty seed, and we saw him do it with Eve and Israel and David and Solomon and James and John and Judas, and it's called self-preservation. It's this tiny little seed of self-preservation which we can nurture. We can nurture that seed of self-preservation every time that we, as an individual or group of Christians, choose to place convenience in front of the cross that Jesus asks us to take up. So as Christians, we wrestle with that need for self-preservation, and there's a very real need for food. In fact, you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your family, is what Paul writes. So I'm not saying that you just have to not care about a job and just go evangelize the world and, you know, to heck with my family. Peter's not saying that either. But he is writing to Christians who faced a problem like you and like I face thousands of years ago in a, a country, Rome, that that had leaders who were more concerned with profit and power than they were with governing well. Uh, and there were people who were more concerned at this time with subsisting, just existing, than, than our culture where we're more concerned with what we're going to watch and when we may choose to watch that show inside of our insulated homes with air conditioning, which is not inherently evil. Uh, I love my air conditioning. But we both cultures, we both wrestle with the same question. How do we express the eternal hope that we have? How do we express that to a country that doesn't care? How? Peter writes as if it will only be our behavior shaped by Scripture and the Holy Spirit that will allow us to show the hope we have in Christ to those that are without Him. Would you pray with me? And then we'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Lord, please illuminate your word to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, transforming us into the image of your Son by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter believed our behavior matters, our behavior towards Christians, our behavior towards outsiders or people who maybe are not really looking for Jesus yet. And, and we need to remember this one like central assumption in the book, the letter, it's a letter to churches, the central assumption that suffering is normal. So everybody with me, let's say suffering is normal. Suffering is normal. Suffering is just like the baseline, it's the bedrock, it's the standard method by which we might show to the world that we have a hope greater than anything that we'll find in a political party, a gender identity, even a team that wins by 31 yesterday. <laughs> okay, we all enjoy our football. We want to normalize suffering because we see Peter normalize it. We see Jesus normalize it, embrace it even. 
We see Paul normalize it when he's writing to Timothy. It's just normal. Suffering is normal. So that's kind of like in the background of the entire letter that we're reading from Peter to people who struggle with the same thing that we're struggling with today. How do we show hope to this world? 1 Peter 3, chap, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. I want to first read from the NLT, and later we'll read from an ESV. Um, I think, did you get a slide for this, Penny? I don't know if S Stephen, I think, made one for us in between. Finally, yeah, thank you so much. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. And I believe that Peter is writing about the church that was formed in Acts chapter 2. He preached that sermon at Pentecost. The church was formed. And I think Peter is now a mat. He's remembering the power that was present in that biblical community right there. So let's, let's just review what that looked like in Acts chapter 2. We'll have it on the screen for you. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, we read that... <clears throat> And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So right there we can see that Peter has seen what it looks like to have a community of people whose lives are laid down for the cause of Christ. And when they do so as a community, that the people can see why they have hope and in whom they have placed their hope. That is a sign to our world that does not know, like, where do we even need hope? They don't know. And it is a sign to them when we have a community that exists like that. And when, when we choose to place ourselves in proximity with other believers and for the purposes of the church, we have a community like Peter has described there. So I believe it's critical and it's foundational and that he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that we need to be of one mind. Can you be of one mind by yourself? Can you be like-minded by yourself? Can you be sympathetic by yourself? Can you love one another by yourself? You cannot be a solo Christian. They don't exist. In fact, I think that when people believe that they can be like just a Lone Ranger Christian, I think that they're not following Jesus. They're following you. So to this person, I say, you're not following Jesus. You're following you, which means you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a Christian at all. You're you're like this guy who I met at the VA who literally made up a religion on the spot in front of me in a hallway, and I was trying to have like a chaplain encounter with him. And he took Native American beliefs 
and some word called God, and he smushed it all together, and he kind of like, and that was it. He's following him. That's who he's following. A biblical community is one that by her love, her sympathy towards one another, her compassion, and her humility is a light to a world that doesn't even know they're living without hope. When we delete biblical community from our calendar and replace it with something we believe is truly helpful for our family, we water down the work of thousands of years of Christians who have laid their lives down to look just like Jesus in an effort to, I don't know, get a sports scholarship, go to the lake, whatever it is for you. I can tell you that for me, it's kind of surrounding sports and making my life easier sometimes. And we water down the witness of the church. Reread with me 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Reread this. I'm not reading it to you. I just want you to kind of reread it and then take these 10 seconds to analyze the answer to these questions. Where does it say, uh, go to a church and then, and then sit in a chair and, and then wait for someone to just start serving you just like you want? Or maybe you can find in there where it says, like, just keep looking for churches every Sunday, no matter what. If you get offended, go find another church and, and then sit in that chair and wait for people to do just what you want and sing the song you want and have the service time you want and do all of their study the way you want it. Where? Right here. Where? Where are we? I don't think we see that. I think it's the opposite. I think Peter is telling the church, I think Peter is telling them that they cannot sit down in a chair and expect someone to come serve them like they're at a restaurant. I think Peter says it's time to get up and get loving. And loving is doing. Bob Goff writes in the book, Love Does, uh, love isn't stationary. In the end, love doesn't just keep thinking about it or planning for it. Simply put, love does. So what is your next step? What, what is your next step to quit thinking about loving or quit planning how to love or quit analyzing how you think the results or the, the consequences maybe are going to fall out from your decision to love and actually just begin loving loving a neighbor, loving an enemy, loving a church member, a brother or sister. Jim is a, a church member in Georgia. Jim receives a cancer diagnosis, and Jim's cancer diagnosis is one of the brain. And so he's experiencing intense suffering. And for any of you that have personally experienced cancer or have had family who have battled cancer, you know the incredible physical and emotional toll it takes, not just on the person battling, but those particularly, their family and friends around them, to support them through that battle. You know the effort and energy required, and it's, it's hard when you're a part of a church and you suffer that, and then you see the church reach out to those that are hungry and, and reach out to those that are hopeless and feel like you've been missed, like you've been isolated. It's what we would call church hurt. Jim felt overlooked. He was complaining to his brother one night at dinner who was a Christian, but no longer a believer. And his brother, so he kind of knew the ins and outs of church. And his brother asked, he asked him, he said, Jim, um, 
who all have you spoken to at church about your diagnosis? Did you share it like with your, your class, or did you share it with your group, or did you maybe you shared it with just like a Bible study group of people you were with? And and Jim is reflecting, and he's quiet for a moment. He kind of looks down and he says, "You know, uh, I haven't told anyone." Brothers and sisters, when when we isolate in an effort to, and maybe we don't even know we do this, to be really American about it, to handle it ourselves, when we isolate, we're not saving someone from having to help us. We're, we're cauterizing the opportunity for compassion. We're ending it by choosing to not share what it is we're going through. So maybe for you, your next step may be to choose to become transparent in whatever expression of biblical community you've placed yourself here, be it a class or a group or a study. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe your next step is to find someone in one of those biblical communities who has said, I'm suffering through cancer. And to love them, not to analyze what will happen if I do it, not to think, oh gosh, I'm going to plan this out for 15 years and like literally never actually do it. Maybe your next step is to just love them. Do something for them. Someone mowed my lawn when I broke my arm. I can't tell you how important that was. It was so important to me. Maybe that is your next step. But pursuing independence over interdependence severs critical relational opportunities that are meant to strengthen the church, the body of Christ. Interdependence is crucial. That's why the American dream and the rebel spirit is an infection when it takes root in the church. We, we cannot love one another if we're not together. Uh, I, um, I, got to speak to <clears throat> I got to speak to someone who came uh, to our next steps, our, our welcome wall, and this person asked me just such an honest question. Um, you talked a lot about community today and how important it is to, to share our sufferings together in community. Um, when is the time in the service when we do that? They, they thought it happened, like, right here. And so many of you are right now thinking, well, that's crazy. Well, yeah, that's not going to work. There's not a time when you grab the microphone and say, hey, everybody, my dog died, and I wrecked my car this week. I could use some prayer. There's not a time in our service for that, is there? But there are smaller expressions of biblical community wherein we can have that level of transparency and then we have to act with love when we hear about that. So in what appears maybe to be an unrelated instruction, Peter continues in verse 9. He says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. It's like Peter is answering our unconscious uh, questions, our unconscious like rejection of verse 8. Like, what are the obstacles to sympathy and love and like-mindedness and humility? And for me, they're fear or bitterness or worry or, or resentment. All of these spring 
from the hell spawn of self-preservation. Self-preservation is like this distorted, like upside down, opposite entirely approach to broken people like ourselves. Uh, It's entirely the opposite of what Jesus does and says, which is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And greater love has no man than this, than that he would lay down his life for another. We become just like Jesus when in the face of insult and injury and suffering, we choose to love. We choose to bless. Behavior like that will prompt a question from those who receive that love or those who observe that powerful love. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Really extremely big challenge, right? That's a very large challenge. Yeah, there you go. That's a very large challenge to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it's especially difficult in uh, America because we don't have enemies, do we? Most of us don't have enemies, and some of you right now are thinking, oh, if you worked where I work, you would have some enemies, and you might be right. But the majority of us, I think, can agree, like our big enemies are uh, my taxes went up, and my homeowners and car insurance went up, and doggone it, my dollar's worth less than it was last year this time, and furthermore, I mean, actually in my life, I went to the grocery store Friday, and milk is 40 cents more. Right, that's kind of our enemy. Or I bet this is an enemy that you all have. This enemy is very real. Tell me if this enemy is one you have encountered this week. I was going to pick up a child from a practice, and I'm driving there, obeying pretty much all of the laws, and someone pulls in front of me who has the audacity to go below the speed limit, and I'm losing my mind. No one's dying at practice, mind you. But I was inconvenienced, and oh my gosh, have you, any of you seen the movie Unhinged? You don't want to admit it in church, I understand. Um, I fast-forwarded through the whole movie, spoiler alert, it's garbage, uh, so earmuffs if you don't want to spoil the garbage movie, but it's this movie uh, Russell Crowe stars in, and someone pulls out in front of him, and he becomes unhinged. He actually follows them to their house and tries to murder the whole family. Totally psychotic, Right? But that's like the level of rage you're feeling, right? Like when someone pulls in front of you and, oh my gosh, they don't go the speed limit. That's like pretty much the closest thing that we have to an enemy. Am I right? I, I think I'm right because our culture has experienced that in mass and then we made a movie about it. The inconvenience is our enemy. It's sad. It's beautiful that that is all we have to deal with in America. So we'll borrow some enemies from our friends in Ukraine. Uh, This man is named Ivan. He's the president of Evangelical Theological Seminary. He was interviewed for Christianity Today. They discussed his real struggle with a real enemy. The first time my apartment was without electricity, but otherwise all right. He says of the first time his hometown got bombed. They were shelled. He rode his bike back there because there's no gas and his car gets shot at every time it moves. The second time my house was bombed, the doors were broken into. I was robbed and there was a Russian soldier's coat left behind in my house. But they didn't just steal things. They smashed the TV, they smashed the computer monitor, and they smashed my appliances. 
My neighbor, Nina, told me that Russian soldiers came to her house, put a gun to her head, and said, show me your valuables. And then they stole everything she had and put knives through the family pictures. A real enemy exists, even if, even if we're not encountering it on a daily basis. May, maybe for you and for me, the enemy that we can most identify with is simply an inconvenience, but almost all of that time, that inconvenience is brought on by a person who we can choose to love. We can choose to bless. Do you dare today to pray when we're closing, God, show me my enemy because I believe he'll show it to us. I'm going to dare to pray that prayer today, and I'm not comfortable about that. And I think that that means that our, our nation, our culture, might then be able to see when we respond in love that we have a hope that is not from here. When our neighbors and our culture believes they can just vote for the only change they need, the only way they will find the hope that we have in Jesus is when we choose to radically love our enemies. Peter expects that by blessing and loving our enemies, we will show the hope that we have in Jesus. In a recent interview, Lebanese Christians shared the trials they suffered and their opportunities to love people with whom they were just at war years before. A Lebanese pastor told a story of his father killed by soldiers from Syria. A woman shared, I stood at gunpoint before Syrian soldiers as I held my baby and I prayed that God would take me first. A church leader recalled the entire town was under siege by Syrians for a hundred days and no medical supplies and no food could go in or out. But when these Christians chose to bless an enemy that was pursuing their death, the power of the gospel was at work. The hearts of their enemies were changed. The pastor whose father was killed has a church that reaches out to thousands of Syrians. A few weeks ago, he invited one of the refugees to the front to wash their feet, showing that we have to respond in love to our enemy. His church has grown from 60 to 900, two-thirds of which are Syrian refugees. The woman who prayed at gunpoint is part of a church that cares for 500 displaced Syrian families. She has tea with Syrians every week. She says, it was one of the greatest challenges I ever faced, but listen to this and look at verse 9. It has brought me the greatest blessing. God is faithful to fulfill his promise. In that town that was under siege, there is a church now working tirelessly to care for over 2,000, not individuals, but Syrian families, feeding 1,400 baskets of food every week. They provide diapers, job training, social support to the people that were trying to kill them. How will we love those who hate us? How will we choose to repay evil with blessing. When we do this, over time, we'll be asked 
why are we behaving this way? And that's why Paul writes in verse 15 that Peter, I'm sorry, Peter writes, Peter expects that this is a natural conclusion. That when we behave this way, we're going to be asked to give a reason for the hope that we have. So right in your Bibles there, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And there's another translation that says, always able, prepared to give an answer for the hope. So I don't think it's the, the idea that we're going to be attacked. Will you defend what you believe? I believe, although that happens, I believe it's that when we respond in this radical love to evil and hate and insult and injury and suffering, that the culture is going to be faced with a question that is undeniable. We have a hope that is not from this world. Man, tell me about that. It's like the perfect sales pitch, right? You, you just want to get to the where the, 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 the target is finally asking you, oh, tell me how I can buy this, right? That's what Peter's saying is going to happen when we respond to evil with love. He's saying that we have to be ready to tell them about the hope that we have. Uh, tonight, our middle schoolers, our high schoolers at 6 o'clock, they're going to begin... Uh, uh, Matthew, is it a six-week series? a six-week series on science and faith. That is just like one step into the foray of apologetics, but our middle and high schoolers are going to become prepared to give an answer for the hope they have. And it will be from a science flavor, of course. They're, they're going to explore, like, does faith fit into a scientific world? Is there any integration? Can Darwin's theory of evolution truly answer questions of origin? they will explore whether their textbooks are full of hypotheses or facts. That's at 6 p.m. tonight. So the question then for all of us who are not middle and high schoolers is how will we prepare ourselves so that we can give an answer when we respond to evil with love? How will we prepare ourselves to give that answer? If, if you would bow your heads, I'm going to give you 65 billion things to think about. I trust that the Holy Spirit will place in your heart, in my mouth, the things that the Lord wants you to begin doing to either love an enemy or to find yourself in a biblical community where you know that you can now express the compassion, humility, love, like-mindedness that Peter says will result in a community that shines the hope and love of Christ to a world that doesn't think they need him at all. It may look like you're signing up for an elective today at Slash Adults. Maybe it looks like you're showing up to a women's or men's study on a, a Tuesday or Wednesday. It, it, it may be that it's time for you to get out of the chair and serve someone else. It may be that it's time for you to contribute some way in, in in the life of a neighbor, maybe, maybe it's an enemy that you have very clearly identified, and yes, they are at work, or no, they are not, but maybe it means that today you have to no longer analyze, but make the choice to act in a loving manner towards someone who wants to see you suffer. Maybe you have in mind someone who's not an enemy, but they need to be blessed by you. It may be that your family has to hit delete on commitments that you thought initially these are great. Maybe it's time to reevaluate the calendar 
and make new decisions? Are you with believers in proximity close enough to tell whether you are like-minded, to tell whether you are expressing any sympathy? Do, do you have a biblical community in a close enough proximity that you can say, I am loving one another? Do you have a place to express compassion and humility to brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we ready today to pray for an enemy? Are we ready to ask God, Lord, show me my enemy? Are we prepared to give the time and the energy required to love an enemy? And then when we do so, we make a habit of doing so, are we ready then to say, here is why I have a hope that is eternal. Here is why I behave as one who is not from this world because I am an exile. I am a sojourner. I am not from here. I am an alien. And I believe in a power greater than me, but it's also alive and inside and working in me. And it's making me just like Jesus. And now the world wants to know. Instead of being dumbed down by the insurance and the affluence and the unaffectedness of our everyday lives, they want to know, where do you get that hope? How do I get that hope? It may be that today is a day you have to go to the welcome wall and find out more about whatever it is your next step is. Maybe you need to go there to say out loud, I need to love my enemy. Ask me next week if it's done. The strategy used by Jesus looked like this. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Can we follow this example? That he might bring us to God. Can we follow that example? Can we be put to death in the flesh and made alive by his Holy Spirit? Father God, please put to death our flesh. Help us become sympathetic, like-minded, filled with compassion, overflowing with love towards one another, even towards enemies that seek to destroy us. And prepare us by your church, by your word, by your Holy Spirit, by our smaller expressions of biblical community, where we become transparent with one another, where we share the struggle and the suffer of life with joy, expecting you to, to perform in the way that only you can because of your mighty hand. Father, I pray that you would make these things come true in our lives, that we would bring you glory and that we would bring the hope that you've given us to our nation and our culture around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.